And I've been doing a lot of reminiscing lately, uh, so much so that my children have actually commented that they're learning things about me and from my childhood that they didn't know. And one of them I told this last Tuesday evening when we gathered together as a family to celebrate our daughter-in-law's birthday. And I shared with them about just after my father had passed away when I was five years of age. And we moved from our remote, uh, dead-end, wilderness home, 70 miles from the Canadian border, into a small Taconite town. And my mother took us to church four months after my dad had died. Very first time I'd ever gone to church in my life. Six years of age. And that was back in the days when you didn't have nursery or you didn't have uh, uh, cry rooms or didn't have children's church at that time. And I had a two-year-old brother and my sister was seven and the two other siblings were in between that and age. And our two-year-old brother was squawking quite a bit in the church service. And, uh, and I'm sure the rest of us were probably making some noise too. And the minister was in his full robed garb, you know, his vestment, and he had his ordination stole on, which I didn't even know any of those things at that time. And he stopped right in the middle of his homily. And he said, young lady, if you can't control your children, maybe you don't need to be here. And my mom picked up her family the first time she'd ever brought us to church, and we marched right out the back door. How many times do things like that happen over the years? where people get driven from churches. Pastor James has a saying, if there's no crying, the church is dying. You know, I've been reminiscing a lot, and some of which has to be related to my personal health, experiencing the declines I've been facing these last three years. And this has caused me to remember what I once could do, and now to be reminded every single day of what I'm not able to do. I have also thought about what has contributed to my back and my knee issues. I worked six years on farms, growing up as a child. And now doctors have figured out some of those activities when you're lifting heavy things too heavy for you and awkward ways of lifting things that it's not good for young people growing up with their ligaments. And, and I threw 18,000 bales of hay many summers. One time alone, I stacked 1,700 bales from 1.30 in the afternoon to 8.30 in the evening in a hay mow all by myself. I would clean with my brothers uh, calf pens for one farmer who would just was really neglectful and it would pile up two three feet deep in that part of the barn and then he'd have us come in there and you try to unearth that stuff with a pitchfork you're bending the handle and you're you're reefing on it and let me tell you what these environmentalists who want to get rid of methane gas and get rid of all the cows most of them aren't even experts they don't know what they're talking about but let me tell you you've never experienced methane gas until you've unearthed some of that bedding and hay and straw like that and calf scours have been trapped underneath that stuff and that wave comes up and hits you in the face. And we would pitch it out the window in a manure wagon or we'd pitch it into a wheelbarrow and bring it up a ramp and dump it into the manure wagon. Uh, I dug two different additions when I was a kid uh, for houses, additions to a house. Me and my brothers, by hand, dig down basement additions. We dug multiple septic tanks, multiple water lines. Uh, I also played football for six years, back when the equipment was not good and the technique was worse. They taught you to tackle with your face mask and the numbers. All that shock goes right down your spine. And we hit every day in practice. You know, We had to prove how tough we are. They don't even tackle in practice anymore. And they have better technique that they teach nowadays. I pole vaulted for 10 years and I had some really bad wipeouts along the way. I also poured concrete for 35 years. And, uh, and then just take ministry itself and how stressful it is. And it's not hard to figure out why now, right now why my body doesn't measure up anymore. Sometimes looking back, 
can be a very sobering experience. Part of the reminiscing I'm doing also has to do with my aging process. Knowing that I've already lived the majority of my life, and what am I going to do in the remaining years that I have left to have the greatest impact for the glory of God? And the conclusion I've come to is that I need to invest in the next generation of leaders, share all the things from my life experiences and what I've learned so they can help others, and they don't have to go through all those same experiences. I also want to help my children and their spouses and their grandchildren uh, with whatever way I can with the time I have left. Part of my reminiscing is also related to being in the twilight of my career, looking back at the amazing things I've been able to experience in ministry and the mistakes that I've made along the way. If I could have some do-overs for those failures, what would I have done differently? And three weeks ago, we had a get acquainted kind with our worship team members and potential ministry intern Sam Moyer and potential part-time associate pastor Sarah Risley. And a portion of that time was spent discussing some of the tensions that had developed among some of our worship team members and worship leaders and their respective families since the departure of our former associate pastor of worship, Pastor Kerry Vick. Now, we felt that in fairness to Sam and Sarah, that we needed to be biblically and lovingly discussing these things, that it needed to be brought out into the light so that Sam and Sarah, should they choose to allow their names to be placed before our church's membership for these open positions, that they would go do it in the full knowledge of the challenges that lie before them. And the truth be told, we weren't even sure that they would even agree after having this experience and hearing this stuff, that they even agreed to allow their names to be put on the ballots. Well, fortunately, a week later, on separate days, they both contacted me and agreed to allow their names to be put before our church's membership. But I began that meeting with an apology that as the lead pastor that I did not gather together the worship team members like this before Pastor Kerry left and with his assistance and to talk to them about the challenges and the pitfalls that we would be facing when we were trying to replace a much-beloved long-term pastor. I wish we had done this on the front end so that whatever who would ever end up filling this role would not have to become what Pastor Larry Williams calls in an unintentional interim, or as others say, a sacrificial lamb. Well, Pastor Carey didn't do that. Pastor Carey would never do that. Pastor Carey did this. Pastor Carey would only allow one new song to be sung on a weekend's worship services. Pastor Carey would let people goof around in their worship team practices and they would last longer. Pastor Carey this, Pastor Carey that. I truly believed at the time that Pastor Kerry's gracious departure, when it happened, uh, to move on to other interests in his life and beyond ministry, that our church was healthy and missional enough that we would go through this transition in an appropriate manner. That assumption proved to be completely false on my part, and that is on me. And yes, we don't know if it would have made a difference if we could have had that meeting on the front end to make people more accepting of the transition regardless of whoever comes in to fill that position. But we know for sure that not trying harder to prepare people in advance has not helped. And I own that as a lead pastor. I've also thought a lot these past few years and studied some of the other our denominations, uh, uh, best churches and largest churches, and some of their strategies regarding the transitions of their long-term lead pastors. And I've thought a lot about my succession. But honestly, I didn't give a lot of thought 
to Pastor Carrie's succession here at Mission Covenant Church. Even though four years ago, I and the executive pastor of the church knew from his performance evals that he was planning to move on. Just like we knew a year and a half in advance before Steve Cornelius, who was a youth pastor here in our church for 11 and a half years, we knew a year and a half in advance before he announced he was going to be moving along to other things outside of ministry. Uh, uh, we knew that, and, I, and, we, and that transition went well, so I just assumed everything would be, would be fine. So just so you know, Cindy and I are planning to retire in this community, and in the future, we would like to remain a part of this church. We have a daughter-in-law in this church, a son-in-law in this church. We have two children in this church, one of which is a pastor here. And we have many, 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 many dear friends in the church and even relatives in the church. But the greatest draw outside of our Lord Jesus Christ for us is we have five grandchildren in this church. And we also, in our retirement, want to travel a bit. We want to spend more time with our two other children who don't live here and our son-in-law and our other grandchildren who don't, do not live here. But what we want you to know is although we will keep our membership here, we will not do anything in this church without the permission of the church's pastors, specifically the new lead pastor and the church's leadership. So please, please, don't ask us for advice about what the church should do in this situation or what they shouldn't do in this situation. Don't ask me to officiate at your funerals or weddings or anniversary celebrations or to provide pastoral care. Your pastors and new pastors need to be given that opportunity to love you, to lead you, to shepherd you, to care for you, to advise you, to teach you, to admonish you, and to be able to exercise their spiritual gifts. As I have jokingly told my children uh, many times now, if people want me to do their funerals, they better plan on dying in the next couple of years. That's a joke, okay? You don't have to take me up on that. Uh, I've also been reminiscing a lot lately about the heartbreaking situations I've encountered in 35 years of ministry, beginning with my internship and something that I experienced on my internship that taught me how important it was to deal with conflict in churches immediately, directly, and in a biblical fashion. We had a farmer in the southwestern church in southwestern Wisconsin. It was a rural, small-town community that I interned at. And a farmer and his wife were members of the church. And he had another good friend who was a farmer. And they worked together many times. They'd go to the coffee shop most every morning's in town there and have coffee together. They worked and helped each other with their uh, repairs sometimes and sometimes with, uh, with uh, um, their harvests. Well, it turned out that this pastor, this farmer in our church, his wife ended up having an affair with his best friend, his fellow farmer. And it took a while for him to figure out what happened. Like most people, they're in denial when those things take place. But when he figured it out, he didn't come to the church. He didn't come to us pastors. He didn't do anything like that. He took matters into his own hands. And suspecting that his wife was over there one night, he took a baseball bat. He slipped over and he hid in the shrubs in front of his friend farmer's house. And when his wife came out of the house and then the farmer came out of the house, he proceeded to beat the man within an inch of his life with that baseball bat. He ended up spending 10 years in the state penitentiary in Waupun because of that. You know, many of the heartbreaking things I've experienced in ministry have to do with people's personal sin. The kind of stuff that makes you lay awake at night in bed, praying for them and wondering, how can I help this person? Or how can I help this family? What does God want me to do in this situation? What does God want me to say to them? And last year, we actually opened up our church facility to a family in the community so they could have a service for one of their loved ones. And numerous people who were in attendance there thanked me for sharing. 
and thank my family members for sharing and for being so gracious to this family. One person even came up, put his arm around me, leaned into me in the, in the luncheon time afterwards, whispered in my ear. He says, now I know what you went through. I tried to talk to this person. They're my best friend about their personal sin, and they never talked to me for five years. When I sat in the sanctuary that day, I looked around, and I saw eight instances of serious sin that as a pastor I had to deal with over the years, and people wonder, why isn't so-and-so in church? Why aren't they here? Why aren't? And you carefully and biblically deal with these situations. And I looked around, and I saw a case of adultery a case of infidelity, a case of spiritual abuse, a case of wife swapping. I've had five cases of wife swapping in my 35 years of ministry, swinging in good old, little old, rural, poplar Wisconsin. There were addictions, chemical addictions. I looked around, and there was a case of someone who broke the law, and there was incarceration as I sat there, things I've had to deal with in my career. Every single one of these matters fits the category what the prophet Jeremiah was addressing in Jeremiah chapter 4, verse 30. Despised lovers. And it seemed so right to every one of these people at the time. It felt so good. They deserved it. They weren't hurting anybody else. This other person cares so much for me. Yada, 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 yada. These lovers end up biting in the end despising you, and it leaves you with all kinds of heartache, and, and it hurts families, and believe me, it hurts churches. It's so easy for human beings to live with the false sense of security, and I think for Christians, this sense of false security is magnified, thinking that we somehow can avoid the imminent danger of God's judgment over sin. If we do not understand the character of God, and we don't understand our own fallen nature, our own human natures, our own sin-prone natures, that we will often live our lives with this false sense of security. That everything's okay. Everything's going to be okay. The people of Israel with their long history of idolatry and rebellion against God needed to be shocked out of their complacency and challenged to repent of their sin before it was too late to do so. Sin is something that Israel and each one of us must learn that cannot be trifled with. We cannot presume God's goodness and his patience and his forbearance of sinful humanity is going to go on indefinitely. Judgment is coming. And people need to repent before it's too late. Now last week we introduced the Old Testament concept of repentance, meaning to return to God. We saw that in chapters 2 and 3 of Jeremiah. Along with this, we discussed the other key word, a cousin to the word repentance, which is backsliding. And it's often translated into English as faithlessness. So here you have repentance. is turning from sin and turning to God. But backsliding is turning from God and turning to sin. Allow, allow me to introduce you another word that surfaces now in chapter 4. And that's the word heart. This comes into play, and five times the word heart is going to be used in the next 26 verses. And it means the source of understanding. It means one voli one's volition. And that in our volition, we need to be responsible agents in loving God and in loving others. But Jeremiah 4, verse 14 says, Jerusalem, wash the evil from your hearts and be saved. How long will you harbor wicked thoughts? You know, if you're going to be saved from this impending doom, 
You need to turn from that sin. You need to repent. And to be saved here also means to be delivered. To be delivered from that and the consequences of that and judgment. Look at verse 5. Announce in Judah and proclaim in Jerusalem and say, Sound the trumpet throughout the land. Cry aloud and say, Gather together. Let us flee to the fortified cities. In Amos chapter 3, verse 6, it says, When a trumpet sounds in a city, do not the people tremble? We're talking air raid sirens here. Like in World War II and war-torn countries like London and, and when the Nazis were bombing them nightly for over a month's time and people would run for cover and they would be in terror and there was sleep deprivation and it was so demoralizing. Amos says that when disaster comes to a city, when people have heard the prophetic oracle and they don't respond to it, has not the Lord caused this? Look at verse 6. Raise the signal to go to Zion. Flee for safety without delay. For I'm bringing disaster from the north and even terrible destruction. When Assyria destroyed the northern kingdom over 100 years before this time, they came from the north. When Babylon came in to destroy uh, uh, Drew, Judah, they came from the north as well. Look at verse 7. A lion has come out of his lair. A destroyer of nations has set out. He's left his place to lay waste your land. Your towns will lie in ruins without inhabitants. And archaeological discoveries have shown us that to the Babylonians, their symbol was that of a lion. They were statues of lions, and they even had enamel paintings of lions representing Babylon. And fortified cities, these were places of refuge for people, especially like Jerusalem, because uh, people that were living in rural areas of Judah could flee to these fortified cities. And the prophet already sees the invasion of the land. He already sees the siege of Jerusalem. He sees the devastation of the land and the decimation of its population. And even though this prophecy is decades away, Jeremiah sees it like it's happening right now. Look at verse 8. So put on sackcloth, lament and wail, for the fierce anger of the Lord has not turned away from us. All you can do right now is lament. Your unrepentance has led to this day, and that's why the only thing you got left to do now is to weep and to wail. Verse 9. In that day, declares the Lord, the king and the officials will lose heart. The priests will be horrified and the prophets will be appalled. You're going to lose heart. Your stamina is going to be gone. You're not going to be able to put one foot in front of the other. Isaiah said in Isaiah 40 that your youths will even grow weary. And tired. That's how bad it was going to be. You'll be physically and mentally exhausted. And this is the way it is with sin. And that's the way it happens, especially over time. Verse 10. Then I said, Alas, sovereign Lord, how completely you deceive this people in Jerusalem by saying you will have peace when the sword is at your throats. This is the most talked about verse in this passage. Because it makes it sound like God deceived people. Or God, God deceived people through giving uh, prophet Jeremiah to say this. But historians don't believe that's happened, and nothing in the book lines up like that. The Septuagint actually translates this. That was an Old Testament translation from Hebrew into Greek. And they interpret this as saying at that moment that they proclaimed a message, that they did this. And this was referring to the false prophets that we talked about in chapter 2 the last couple of weeks. And they were the ones who proclaimed a message of peace, saying basically, we're okay. We're going to be okay. This cannot happen to us here. We're in the promised land. We have the law. We, we have the temple. We have the Ark of the Covenant. Verses 11 and 12. At that time, this people in Jerusalem will be told, a scorching wind from the barren heights in the desert blows toward my people. 
but not to winnow and cleanse, or, or cleanse. A wind too strong for that comes from me. Now I pronounce my judgments against them. You know, they would get these scorching hot eastern or southern winds that could come. And it's not going to be a light wind where you can winnow the grain and toss it up and the chaff would blow away. This is going to be so hot and so harsh and so direct. This judgment is going to be so profound that there's no escaping it. It's going to blow everything away. Verses 13 through 15. Look, he advances like the clouds. His chariots come like a whirlwind. His horses are swifter than eagles. Woe to us, we're ruined. And verse 14 we've already read, but verse 15 says, A voice is announcing from Dan, proclaiming disaster from the hills of Ephraim. Now Dan is no more. Dan was the northernmost tribe in Israel, the northern kingdom, which was overthrown well over 100 years before this time frame here. But there were still people living there. And they were the first ones who would see this invasion coming. And when it says here that they proclaimed it, you know, when you declare something, that's like, uh, announcing something on the news. But when you proclaim it, that's forcefully publishing something. That's like an amber alert that goes off and stops all the programming. Or a storm warning or an alert like that. All the programming stops and the focus is upon that. That's what's happening. The foe is near and there's a little time to return to God. Verses 16 and 17. Tell this to the nations. Proclaim concerning Jerusalem. A besieging army is coming from a distant land, raising a war cry against the cities of Judah. They surround her like men guarding a field because she has rebelled against me, declares the Lord. The siege will be so complete that Jerusalem and Judah, they're going to be surrounded. There's no way of escaping. And whose fault is all of this? Look at verse 18. Your own conduct and actions have brought this on you. This is your punishment. How bitter it is. How it pierces to the heart. You brought this upon yourselves. You have made your own bed. Now you have to sleep in it. Now you're going to experience what it truly means to hit rock bottom. And verses 19 through 21. Oh, my anguish. My anguish. I writhe in pain. Oh, the agony of my heart. My heart pounds within me. I cannot keep silent, for I have heard the sound of the trumpet. I've heard the battle cry. Disaster follows disaster. The whole land lies in ruin in an instant. My tents are destroyed. My shelter in a moment. How long must I see the battle standard and hear the sound of the trumpet? This is Jeremiah. It's one of the reasons he's called the weeping prophet. He's in so much anguish. And, and the scholars believe that he might have even dramatized this or acted this out before them. My heart from the depths of my bowels. I'm sick to my stomach. I'm so upset. I'm so overwhelmed with grief over your sin. How many times do I have to see the standards being carried by this army? How many times do I have to hear the trumpet call? Verses 23 through 26. And notice as I read this, each verse begins with, I looked, I looked, I looked. I looked at the earth and it was formless and empty. And at the heavens and their light was gone. I looked at the mountains and they were quaking. All the hills were swaying. I looked and there were no people. Every bird in the sky had flown away. I looked and the fruitful land was a desert. All its towns lay in ruins before the Lord, before his fierce anger. Many Bible scholars believe that this is the most forceful passage in all of the prophetic literature in the Bible. 
It's so vivid, so simple, so direct, so broad. And yet it clearly details the gravity of the subject at hand. In verse 23, what's it talking about? It's talking about the creation account in Genesis chapter 1. The world was formless. It was void. There was darkness. And then God brings order. God speaks the world into being. And then there was intelligent design. There was beauty. There was orderliness. There were human beings who were made fearfully and wonderfully. uh, And and they become co-rulers and co-regents over the world. And God said it was all good. And now the opposite has happened. Creation is no longer good. The promised land is no longer good. My people are no longer good. The mountains and the hills, symbols of stability and security are quaking. The people are all gone. They're, they're scattered. They're captive. Or, or they've been completely disappeared. And birds, the most common widespread creature, creature on the entire earth. Your birds are everywhere. And all of a sudden, they're gone. And the productive land is gone. Here's the bottom line. Creation is the theater of God's glory. Let me say that again. Creation is the theater of God's glory. And basically, God is saying, my glory has departed because Judah has brought disorder. They brought chaos and darkness with all of their idol worship and their personal sin. And for the sake of application today, let me say This is exactly what happens when people go headlong after sin. If someone has an affair, what do they end up with? They often end up with a destroyed marriage. They end up with a broken family. Sometimes they end up with kids who will hate them for the rest of their life. They end up with financial devastation. What do they have? They have mistrust, disorder, chaos, and darkness. What about when someone becomes chemically addicted to drugs or alcohol or even painkillers? They may lose their job. They might get in trouble with the law. They may destroy their relationships. They may lose their loved ones and their friends' respect and support. And there's issues like loneliness and depression and sometimes even incarceration and even from time to time an untimely death. What do they have? They have chaos, darkness, disorder, and distrust. Families who just set God to the side. You know, other things in life are more important than God. So, uh, you know, a, a close friend of mine actually told me, he goes to church in Superior, he told me last Sunday, because the Viking game was on at 8.30 in the morning, that one man in the church had his phone with the Viking game on, had the volume turned down, and he would just have the open Bible. If someone looked, he would put it over the top and pull it back. Now, we have a Packer game going on today, so I'm sure that's probably happening as well. We just have half the people not in church today because the Packer game's on right now. Our first service was small. This service is small. That's what's happening. But if we take anything in our lives and we put it ahead of God, whether it's sports, whether it's recreation, it's camping, it's hunting, it's golfing, it's family time, or even your opinions about the church or about churches, if you put that ahead of God, watch out. You know a lot of young people growing up do not like churches? So I tell you, parents, be very careful what you say about the church in the presence of your children. You may actually be contributing to chasing your children away from the Lord. And the telltale sign is when you get attitude, you get disrespect, you get foul language, or even the proverbial eye rolls from them. And sadly, many young people like Jesus but they don't like Jesus' followers. See, setting God aside leads to chaos, 
It leads to darkness. It leads to disorder. And God never designed his creation for that. He never designed marriages or families for this. God has designed his creation to be the theater of his glory, to work in harmony. And whenever you do not see that, you know that a lesser God is being worshipped somewhere. And by the way, the apocalyptic overtones of this passage are absolutely unmistakable. The losses of civility and of order in our culture display as well as the, all the wars and the deception and the saber-rattling and the threats and even the threats of use of nuclear weapons right now that are going on in the international scene. All of that, our culture and our world, are all spinning out of control right now, and it all points to chaos. It all points to disorder. It all points to this, you know, darkness. Not the way God designed his creation to be, but it also points to God's imminent judgment. It will come. Verses 28 through 31. Therefore the earth will mourn, and the heavens above grow dark, because I've spoken and will not relent. I have decided and will not turn back. At the sound of the horsemen and the archers. Babylonians had the best archers in the world, by the way. Every town takes to flight. Some go into the thickets. Some climb up among the rocks. All the towns are deserted. No one lives in them. What are you going to doing, you devastated one? Why dress yourself in scarlet and put on jewels of gold? Why highlight your eyes with makeup? You adorn yourself in vain. You think your lover's going to come and it's going to be great. No, no. You're going to end up despised. Your lovers despise you. They want to kill you. You've given yourself to all these other things. And what do you end up in the end? I hear cries as a woman in labor, a groan of one bearing her first child, the cry of the daughter of Zion grasping for breath and stretching out her hands and saying, Alas, I'm fainting. My life is giving over to murderers. You know, without question, the disintegration of communal life is the inevitable outworking of moral and spiritual failure. And fools, the Bible teaches, are people who have rebelled against the truth and who fail to grasp the significance of the truth. One verse I've purposely not read this far is verse 22. My people are fools. They do not know me. They're senseless children. They have no understanding. They're skilled in doing evil. And they know not how to do good. Saddest commentary of all is my own people. Do not even know me. They're senseless. They have no understanding. They don't even know how to do good. The only thing they're really skilled at is doing evil. Another verse I didn't read was verse 27. This is what the Lord says. The whole land will be ruined, though I will not destroy it completely. In the midst of this profound passage of judgment, we see God's grace in action. Not completely destroying the land. And had the land been completely wiped out, the Old Testament would never have been completed. And it probably would not have been worth writing or even be worth preserving. And nor would the New Testament ever have been written or maybe even have taken place. After all, Jesus is the lion from the tribe of Judah. And he was born in Judah. God tells us here in his word that he will always preserve a faithful remnant to himself. Which is why no matter what we ever do in our life or what we haven't done on this earth, as long as there's still breath in our lungs and thoughts going through our minds, it's never too late to repent of our sin and turn to God before the darkness, chaos, disorder of our lives and of this world gets much worse. The Bible says now is the acceptable time. 
Today is the day of salvation. Would you pray with me, please? God, our Father, as we've looked at this very strong, passionate, prophetic word today, you have shown us that sin is not something to ever be trifled with. And it's so easy, God, to be like the world and do all the things the world does and not realize that the whole time we're actually drifting from you. And God, we hear your invitation to return before it's too late, before that imminent, impending judgment takes place. Oh, God, I pray for that in your people. In Jesus' name.